Welcome to A Disciple's Point of View, a podcast where we go over a variety of topics related to Christianity. Hello and welcome to this week's A Disciple's Point of View. So we finished last week with uh, the submission to authorities, the uh, Romans 13, um, a lot of pastors, especially over the last year and a half, have uh, quoted this section of scripture a lot, Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. But we're going to go past that, and we're going to actually go into verse 8 and finish out the chapter today. And this is not at all what Paul was just talking about. He switches gears completely from what he was talking about in obeying governmental authorities. So in verse 8, he says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. So I'm going to go on. Uh, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. And this harkens back to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22. He was basically an expert of the law, was asking him, uh, basically, what is the greatest commandment in all of the law? And this is what it says, starting in verse 34 of chapter 22 in Matthew. says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And if you really stop and think about it for a minute, it does. Absolutely. So you go back through and you read through, say, the book of Exodus or the book of uh, Deuteronomy, where basically duet nomos, you're repeating the law, basically. Uh, is what that means. But uh, you go back through there, do not do this, do not do that. And instead of trying to uphold some degree of a moral code, if you stop and think about it for a second, if you love the Lord, are you going to worship any of the gods? No. If you love the Lord, are you going to blaspheme? No. Are you going to take the name of the Lord your God in vain? No. Uh, Likewise, if you love your neighbor as yourself, are you going to covet? Right? Are you going to steal? Are you going to commit adultery? Because keep in mind, whenever Jesus is talking about love your neighbor as yourself, and another point in the Gospels, uh, somebody wishing to justify themselves said, well, who is my neighbor? Right? Right? And that's where we get the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? It was a factor of, you know, you had a Levite pass by somebody who had fallen to robbers along the road. You had a Pharisee walk by uh, and neither help them, right? They're like, well, he's he, he, may, he may be dead and I don't want to become ceremonially, ceremonially unclean because according to the law of God, if you touched a dead body, you were ceremonial un- ceremonially unclean word is tripping me up, unclean for a period of time. However, a Samaritan who was not an Israelite, basically it was a group of people who were 
technically descendant from the 10 tribes of Israel that were dispersed uh, by the Assyrian Empire about 750 BC that intermarried amongst the people that they uh, were scattered to, the nations that they were scattered to and dispersed to, and then they became the Samaritans. And they worshipped according to how their traditions told them, right? And that's a little bit of a very brief history about it. But regardless, they were looked down upon by the ancient Israelites back in the days of Jesus. So if a Samaritan does the right thing, helped out the person who had fallen to robbers, bandaged up their wounds, helped them, and uh, paid their way to stay at an inn for X amount of time, and even said, I'm going to come back in a few days, and whatever else, whatever other expenses he incurs, I will pay that. That person is a neighbor, right? So he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was making the point, even your arch enemy is your neighbor. Everybody who is not you is your neighbor. Hence, love your neighbor as yourself, right? So it's this whole factor of we don't have to have a long litany list of rules to be able to be justified before God. Or I should say, because our works do not justify us before God, but to be able to do the works that God is asking us to do. Ephesians 2 verse 10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, uh, so that we may walk in them. James 2 24, um, uh, See, we're not saved by what we do, but also by, um, by works, basically. I'm paraphrasing there. Um, it's not so much a factor of we're saved by what we do and by our works, but we show who we are by our works. Our faith will always work, meaning that it's just not something static that I sit upon and I do nothing about it. If I'm a Christian, I'm going to have some degree of works that I go about and do on a daily basis. Either, you know, I'll give to various ministries. Maybe I'll help somebody. Maybe I'll give an encouraging word. Maybe I'll stop and help somebody broken down on the side of the road. X number of things, all the way up to sharing the gospel with people, right? It's sometimes the hardest thing to do because, you know, it's like, well, what if, what if this happens? What if this happens? Or what if uh, somebody else associated with that person looks down upon me and maybe I lose that friendship? Well, at the same time, it's like we're talking about eternity here. So we're talking about he heaven and hell. So if we love our neighbor as ourselves, and if we love the Lord our God with all our heart, strength, soul, mind, and spirit, then we're not going to sin. We're not going to to do the things that we're not supposed to do. We're going to do the things that we are supposed to do, right? And that's going to basically fulfill everything that the law said. That's why the law cannot save. The law is just a litany of rules. It's almost like traffic laws, modern day traffic laws. There are so many on the books, it's impossible for you to keep them all 100% of the time. And the same is true of the law. We talked about earlier the law of God, rather, you know, in under the old covenant. So we kind of talked about earlier in the series, I believe it was in uh, Romans chapter 7 or 8, I believe, where basically the law was given so that trespasses may increase, so that God would then turn around and be able to be more gracious to humanity. Oftentimes it's like, you know, why is there so much evil in the world? Well, Number one, we wouldn't know what good is if it wasn't contrasted with evil, right? And we wouldn't know what grace is if it wasn't contrasted with wrath, 
we really wouldn't. We'd have no clue what those concepts mean. It's like, you know, well, what is evil? It's like, well, it's the opposite of good. Well, what is good, right? So it's almost like, you know, somebody who says there are no moral absolutes. Well, <laughs> guess what? That's an absolute. So you can never really arrive at this place where you had an original line of thought that you're not comparing uh, something to uh, another that hasn't already been revealed, right? So if, say, Adam and Eve had not sinned, you know, obviously there was some degree of punishment in that they were kicked out of the garden, right? And they started the process of aging. They started the process of dying and stuff like that. Um, the Lord said, in the day you eat of it, you shall die. They started dying that day, and they died in some ways spiritually because then they were separated to some degree or another from God. And then the next generation, we saw the very first murder, right? But even Cain did not receive the just due for what he did. He was exiled away from wherever it was that they were living at the time. And basically, he had a mark put upon him. You know, because he said, my, my punishment is more than I can bear. If anybody finds me, they're going to kill me. And God said, not so. I will put a mark upon you that nobody will touch you. Right. He wasn't, you know, it wasn't tit for tat. God showed him mercy. Right. We saw that there is wrath and there is punishment, but there's also mercy. So one cannot exist without the other in, in a sense, in a way. So. It's the same thing whenever, you know, when you're talking about the law versus grace, the law brings punishment. The law has a degree of, if you don't do this, I will not do this versus grace. It's like, I will do this. All you need to do is trust and have faith. Hopefully that makes some degree of sense. Picking it back up in verse 11, besides this, you know that the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." This right here, okay, verses 11 through 14, is living in an expectation that the Lord could come back for his church at any time. So we have an indirect, in my opinion, we have an indirect reference right here to the rapture of the church, the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Because, and this is going to be a little bit of an aside, but if there, let's say the rapture of the church is a post-tribulation rapture, meaning that the tribulation or basically the events of the book of Revelation have to happen first and that the church goes through it. And then basically at the end of that, we'll be raptured only to come back down with the Lord, which seems kind of, why not just leave us on the earth? It seems kind of silly. But anyway, let's say that's the case. We know then we have to go through the tribulation first. So then we're not looking for Jesus Christ. We're looking for Antichrist. We're not told to look for Antichrist. We're not. Basically, we're told about Antichrist in passing. And to be quite honest, in the New Testament, there's not a lot about the Antichrist. I would think that if the church needed to gird their loins and to prepare themselves to face the Antichrist and the wrath of Antichrist, there'd be prolific writings about it. Because the apostles would be doing a grave insert, um, disservice to us if they didn't 
tell us about that which the church was eminently about to face. Now, the church does face persecutions. The church does face hard times. Yes, that is true. And to some degree, we do endure the wrath of man. We do endure the wrath of Satan. But this is not as remarkably different from the day of the Lord or the events of the book of Revelation. The books, if, if you go through and read Revelation 6 through 19, I don't know how anybody's going to be left alive at the end of it. Christians, by and large, will be all killed. I don't think much of any Christians will actually live through the tribulation period, much less live through the judgments of God. I mean, you're talking about all the water becomes blood. I mean, you can't live but three days without water. The human body will die. And then God's going to turn it all to blood, meaning that you can no longer hydrate your body. The sun will be made to where it scorches people and they're set on fire. These are bold judgments I'm talking about. These are basically there are three sealed, or I'm sorry, seven sealed judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and then seven bold judgments. Okay. So my point with all of this is that the church then wouldn't be looking for Jesus Christ. We'd be looking for Antichrist, right? And if that's the case, what motivation is there to live holy? If the Lord is not going to return for us at any given moment, and he's not going to walk in on us finding us doing something we shouldn't do, why is there an exhortation here to live a holy life? He says right here, for the hour is come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer now to us than when we first believed, which is true. Every second we that the clock ticks by is a second closer to that salvation that is found in Jesus Christ, right? Um, 28 years ago when I became Christian, I am nearer now to salvation than when I first believed. That is true. That is a true statement. I think Paul, literally, since obviously he's an apostle, He's like everybody else. Jesus says, no man knows the day of the hour, but only my Father who is in heaven. It isn't so much so that God the Son has no idea he has limited himself. In the book of uh, uh, Philippians, it talks about how he emptied himself the independent use of his deity, although he is still deity. But he has limited himself in the fact that he doesn't know when he's supposed to come for the church. And that very much follows the tradition of a Ga an ancient Galilean wedding. Basically, a man and a woman would get betrothed to one another. And she could actually say yes or no. And once she agreed to it, the son and the father go away to prepare a room that is on added on to his own father's house. They're making the preparations for the marriage and stuff like that. And then only the father would tell the son, all right, go get your bride. And oftentimes it would be in the middle of the night. Not making this up. It's actually an ancient Galilean uh, uh, tradition. That's oftentimes, uh, I say oftentimes, but basically in Matthew 25, there's the parable of the 10 virgins. It illustrates this very thing. The bridegroom came in the middle of the night. Right. And there's five who didn't have extra oil. And there's another five who did have extra oil in case he he, you know, was a little bit longer than was expected. And in my opinion, this is rather telling because Jesus is talking about 
in Matthew 24, what are going to be the signs of the end? And he gives a really just ginormous Jewish perspective overview of what the time of Jacob's trouble will be like. The time of Jacob's trouble is another way of saying the tribulation period of the books, uh, the events of the book of Revelation, right? But then directly after that, he talks about the parable of the ten virgins where he gives an illusion that he's going to be a while. And he's not necessarily going to come as quickly as is expected. But if his coming is imminent, we don't have any kind of sign before he comes back for his church and gathers us unto himself. Right? It could be at any moment. At any moment. We don't know what the future holds. Right? We're limited by space and time as human beings, even as Christians. We don't have any sort of clue. Oh, it's going to be this date, this date, this date, this date. Um, always stay away from people who set dates on the coming of the Lord because they've all been proven wrong. And in my opinion, the Lord would not come on that day just to spite that person and prove them wrong. Right. And that's why oftentimes I'm even criticized on Twitter. I had a response the other day. It's like, you know, I was like, you know, golly, the time is really short because of this one particular development. Uh, that was going on in the world. And this person was like, really, how long have you been saying this? And yada, yada, yada. And I'm not sure if it was directed at me because um, I did repurpose from another, I guess you could call it online ministry that I had. And I just basically renamed this Twitter account. So I don't think it was necessarily me, but it could have been this uh, because I posted a a video from another ministry and it could have been that ministry. Maybe he was, this person was referring to, regardless of any of that, the criticism is, as we've been saying it forever, we've been saying it forever, but even the Apostle Peter said, you know, the Lord is not slow as some count slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to eternal life, right? So it's not a factor of God is delaying necessarily on purpose. He is delaying because he wants to save as many people as possible. And every day he delays is another day that people, people can be saved, right? So Paul is basically, he has two paragraphs here in the English Standard Version. It's two paragraphs where he's, you know, telling people to follow what Jesus already said in the two greatest commandments in, in this hang the law and the prophets. And then Paul turns around and juxtaposes that with basically we can expect the Lord at any time, right? And yeah, we're saying this with the, with the benefit of hindsight saying that, you know, it's like, well, the Lord could come at any time, but it's been 2,000 years and he hasn't come yet. But we're starting to see things happening in the world. For example, Israel is back in the land. That's in fulfillment of Genesis 15, um, uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 through 12, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 8, uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 23 through 38, the entirety of Ezekiel 37, Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34 and Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27. That right there is just a sampling of how God would regather the nation a second time, right? He'd only booted them from the land at that point. He was preparing to boot them from the land the first time. The first time the 10 tribes that went to the north whenever uh, Israel had their civil war and they became a split nation, uh, that group of uh, people were carried off into exile around 750 BC, and they never came back to the land. In about 5, 
53 or 575 BC is when the kingdom of Judah went into the Babylonian exile for violating the Sabbath years, and they were decreed to go into exile for 70 years. And then after 70 years, roughly, they were allowed to come back and rebuild at the command of Artaxerxes. They were allowed to come back and rebuild the temple and the city. And then not 483 years later, Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? And then it's like we're just waiting for that last seven years to be fulfilled, according to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. That's just one aspect of prophecy. The fact that we can look on a map and see Israel instead of Palestine, because it was called Palestine initially by the Romans back in the second century. Right. And it's actually a derivation of the Philistines or Philistia. Right. And so basically it was a dig on that area because the Philistines were the ancient arch enemies of Israel. You read through the Old Testament. Often it says that. And as a matter of fact, calling somebody a Philistine was actually an insult uh, in the Old Testament period. Right. So just that you could look on a map and see an area that says Israel is saying a lot the hour is late granted yes we've been saying that for a really long time as the church but you know what we are looking for jesus christ we're not looking for antichrist right you cannot say that the church is going to go through the tribulation period you cannot say that basically there are extensive uh epistles written on how to endure the wrath of the antichrist it's just not there we're looking for Jesus Christ. We're not looking for Antichrist. And I hope that you're going to be found ready whenever he does finally return for his church. At this point in the podcast, I want to reach out to you. And if you have never done so, if you have never entered into a saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that today. All you need to do is believe. Believe that Jesus was who he said he was. He was God in the flesh. Believe in your heart that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. Confess him as Lord. And the Bible says that you will be saved if you do that. If you truly believe in your heart that Jesus is who he said he was and that he did exactly what he said he would do for you, you will be saved. It is simply that easy. A lot of people say prayer, prayer. And that's great to confess and put your mind and your heart and everything through a process, if you will, to be able to embody what's already taken place in your heart. By simply saying, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe in my heart that you were raised from the dead. And now I confess you as Lord. Please take control of my life, and I want to follow you for the rest of my days. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. That's all you need to do, and your life will change. Your life will change, not necessarily materially, not necessarily in terms of the world, but your life will change as far as your relationship with God, and you can know for certain that you're saved. The Apostle John wrote that when he was pinning 1 John. He says, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you can hope, 
Not that you can wonder, but that you can know. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I want to thank you so much for listening to my podcast today. If you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason, I have the links for the social networks that I am connected on in my bio for this podcast. I'm also available at Gmail at DisciplePOV, that's D-I-S-C-I-P-L-E-P-O-V at gmail.com. If you have anything that you would like to convey to me, such as something you agree with, something you don't, or anything else, or if you did receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, I'd love to hear from you today and to assist you on your new eternal journey.